Kenneth G. Elzinga is the Robert C. Taylor Chair of Economics at the University of Virginia. He was the first recipient of the Cavaliers Distinguished Teaching Professorship at the university, a recipient of our Alumni Association uh, Distinguished Professor Award, and the Commonwealth of Virginia Outstanding Faculty Award, as well as awards in education from the Keenan and Templeton Foundations. In 1992, he was given the Thomas Jefferson Award, which is the highest university award accorded to a faculty member. Mr. Elsinger is the author of more than 70 academic publications. He's also known for his three mystery novels that he co-wrote with author William Bright under the pen name Marshall Jevons. And uh, if you haven't read those, they're very interesting. The protagonist employs economic analysis and marginal analysis, and ISO difference curves, I suspect, uh, to solve crimes. The novels have been used in classrooms across the country to illustrate introductory economic principles and have been translated into seven languages. Mr. Elzinga had a BA from an honorary doctorate from Kalamazoo College and a PhD from Michigan State. And he's been a member of the university faculty since 1967. Finally, it's most appropriate that Mr. Elzinger is speaking to us before a football game, because probably a little known fact is that he's a rabid football fan, college football fan. I was a student in his economics class in 1968, <clears throat> and the UVA football team was heading into its 20th losing season. He regaled us with stories and feats of the mighty Michigan State Spartans and, of course, their great coach, Duffy Doherty. Leading up to the end of the season, in which Michigan State plays the University of Michigan, he became more and more animated and went into details about the stadium design and the pregame activities. If I recall correctly, Monday after the game, in which Michigan State lost, he had a particularly difficult time focusing on class. So please welcome Ken Elzinger. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you, Althea, and thank you, uh, Tom, as well. And thanks to the Alumni Association for uh, assembling events that uh, I often find very, very congenial when I'm able to participate in them. And also, thanks to you for being alumni of this university. I do not have the honor of a degree from UVA, but it has been just one of the profound blessings of my life to be uh, associated with this university on the faculty. And one of the reasons for that is because of the loyalty of alumni to this institution. And uh, even though I'm an economist, I don't say that just with regard to the money that you give to the university, even though that's really a, a margin of excellence for this school. I recognize that. But I say it also. Um, because of the, uh, the atmosphere that alumni set for this institution. And I'm reminded of that in a number of ways, but the most particular one for me is um, my field of research is antitrust economics, and I sometimes do consulting in that area, and I'm often in uh, law firms and corporations. And an example, and this has happened more than once, I was at a law firm in New York last week, uh, Cravath, and uh, I was leaving a, an assignment and was out in the hallway getting ready to fly back to Charlottesville, and the person I was with introduced me to a colleague of his as a professor from the University of Virginia. And whereupon the person said, oh, the University of Virginia. He said, we have six or seven uh, partners in the firm from the University of Virginia. All they ever do is talk about their school. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what has intrigued me about that, and I've heard that at, at other law firms and corporations as well, is that 
the conversation is about the school. It's not just about the athletic program or a football team or something like that. It's about the whole kit and caboodle. It's the package. It's the architecture. It's honor. It's the, the student self-governance. It's academics. And several people have told me they just don't see that type of conversation, that water cooler type of conversation about other universities. And um, I am struck at how that filters down even to the first-year students. I teach a lot of first-year students. I have a lot of first-year students come through my office, L literally hundreds of them in the course of a semester. And a standard line I have is, how's it going? How's it going in your first year? And it's striking to me how enthused they are. I mean, I'll even try to dampen the enthusiasm. I'll say, well, how's it going in the dorms? Uh, how's the life? And, oh, oh, I love my hall. I love the kids on my hall. Now, these are people living in buildings that were you know, constructed in the 50s, and they don't have air conditioning. And I know it's very different from their homes for the most part. And they're still enthused about living in these old dorms on McCormick Hall. And it's because of the university, because of their classmates, and, and, and so on. And I hope maybe because of their classes as well. So uh, all right, I've been asked to speak about an industry that is beloved by many college students, and that's <laughs> the beer industry. And I'm going to link beer to what I'm going to call its sister industry, and that's wine. And my credentials for the task is, number one, I've written several scholarly articles about the beer industry, and I've also been an economic consultant to several major brewers, most recently to Miller & Coors in their joint venture, and, uh, and also a consultant to, uh, to InBev in its acquisition of Anheuser-Busch, one of the largest acquisitions in the history of the American economy. Um, I am, however, a teetotaler, which puzzles some of my students and uh, also disconcerts some of the brewing firms for whom I've consulted. And just an aside, the older people in the brewing industry, in their brain somehow or in their heart, they cannot distinguish between a teetotaler and a prohibitionist. I am, I am not a prohibitionist. We serve wine and beer in my home. I happen to be a teetotaler. Younger people in the industry understand that, but old people just, if you're a teetotaler, you must be a prohibitionist, and I'm trying to say no. Um, wine aficionados, some wine drinkers look upon beer the way an Aston Martin owner would look upon a Chevy Vega. And I know beer drinkers who would look upon wine the way a pickup truck owner would look upon a Nissan Leaf. But as a matter of taxonomy, beer and wine, I'm going to argue, are sibling industries. And as with brothers and sisters, there may be disagreements on many topics, but there is no denying a family connection. For example, each industry obviously involves an alcoholic beverage. The production of both beer and wine is both a science and an art. Each one can be enjoyed alone, but is often enjoyed in groups. Uh, neither one is a commodity product, and each one can be addictive. With regard to consumption, uh, the consumption has few, if any, network effects, but each beverage has negative externalities in consumption, but not negative externalities in production. Beer and wine also share uh, the characteristic of having very ancient origins. And each one has fascinating histories. But having said all this, in the language of my world of antitrust, beer and wine are in separate relevant markets. 
their cross-elasticity of demand, remember that term from Econ 201, their cross-elasticity of demand is low, their cross-elasticity of supply is even lower. So let's talk about beer for starters. Few, if any, American industries have undergone the, the structural transformation that occurred in brewing during the period framed by the end of World War II to the end of the 1980s. And during these years, the American beer industry went from dozens and dozens of traditional brewers of lager beer to a very small handful of firms engaged in the mass production of lager beer. But after a steady decline in the number of traditional brewers, starting in around 1970, there began a remarkable increase in the number of specialty brewers, what I'll call the craft segment of the industry. And this beer industry's restructuring has been the subject of several important antitrust cases. That's one of the avenues by which I became interested in the industry, uh, involving horizontal mergers. At one time, mergers between sizable firms like Pabst and Blatt's uh, were challenged by the federal antitrust authorities. They were prohibited. Um, looking back on that now, it's a striking thing because large mergers and joint ventures are not challenged anymore by the antitrust authorities. There's been mega mergers that have received green lights from the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division, most notably the joint venture that combined the number two and number three brewers, Miller and Coors, just a few years ago, and then this remarkable combination that would have been inconceivable under American antitrust laws some years ago, um, the combining of InBev and Anheuser-Busch, with um, InBev being, if you don't know, a, a Belgian company, a giant beer um, firm in, in, uh, in Europe. Now, to illustrate the transformation, in the 1950s and 1960s, there were dozens of independent brewers in the United States they were very prominent suppliers of beer in their respective region. And I'm going to use an example from the state where I grew up. Um, in 1957, in the state of Michigan, the four leading brands of beer were Goebel, that was number one, Stroh's, Pfeiffer, and Drury's. Now, when I go back to my home state now, I still have family there. Um, most beer drinkers wouldn't even recognize these brands. Uh, in 1959, Budweiser barely made the top 10 brands sold in the state. Miller was number 13. Coors had no sales whatsoever in Michigan at the time. By 1970, after I joined the faculty here, Pabst was the leading seller in Michigan. Stroh's was still in second place. Anheuser-Busch had jumped to number three. Miller had not yet made its way up the sales ladder. This was prior to its being acquired by Philip Morris. And a brand called Carling was number four. Imports were barely on the radar screen, uh, less than 1% of sales, uh, even though Michigan is proximate to Canada, where there's a lot of beer brewed. The beer brands that were once stalwarts in Michigan, Goebel, Pfeiffer, Strohs, Drury's, and Carling, are gone. And the same story could be told over and over again, from Maine to California. I don't have very many props with me, but one that I brought is a, a bottle, glass bottle of Lucky Lager beer. In my lifetime, this was once the largest selling beer in California. 
You can still find it if you hunt around, but it's largely, largely gone. And as I say, that's been the story of the beer industry from Maine to California. This happened through exit, firms going out of business, a lot of these firms exited by the merger process. Dozens of independent brewers who once were household names have dwindled to a few. Some observers refer to the core of the beer industry today essentially in econ lingo as a duopoly, a duopoly comprising Anheuser-Busch and Miller Coors as a joint venture. Anheuser-Busch and Miller Coors generate over 75% of the U.S. beer industry shipments today. And the difference in size between those two brewers and the rest of the industry is, is simply enormous. Now there are two economic theories that might account for a concentration trend like this, a trend to where an industry moves to being dominated by one or two sellers. One is firms exploiting economies of scale. Another one that's tossed about with regard to the beer industry is mass advertising. That Anheuser-Busch and Miller Coors threw so much advertising dollars that they simply removed much of the competition from the marketplace. There's a, a writer named Eric Felton who writes not on the economics of alcoholic beverages but the culture of alcoholic beverages. And he thinks that the rise of Miller Coors and Anheuser-Busch is through mass advertising. Uh, he recently wrote a review of Bud Light, Coors Light, and Miller Light brands. And this is what he concluded. No wonder these beers are so heavily advertised. No one would think to drink them otherwise. <laughs> and even if there were those who actually like the stuff, the different brews are virtually indistinguishable. Nothing begs for vigorous marketing like products that are otherwise undifferentiated. Now, my own studies of the beer industry give me some pause about the mass advertising hypothesis. I'm going to give you a couple anecdotes that run contrary to that theory. I'll do three of them. The first one is to raise a rhetorical question. It's about the one other prop I brought. And it's a can of Schlitz beer. And I wonder how many of you remember this brand, Schlitz beer. A lot of you do. Now, this brand of beer um, at one time was the largest brewer in the United States. Schlitz was the leading brand of beer in all of your lifetimes. And more money was spent advertising Schlitz than any other brand. And notwithstanding the massive advertising which exceeded that of Anheuser-Busch, exceeded that of Miller, the Schlitz brand went into a tailspin and you can scarcely find it on the retail stores today. Just within a matter of years, went from number one down the tubes. As a brand, Coors has always spent less on media advertising than Budweiser, but um, for example, in the past couple of years, Coors spends about $230 million on brand advertising. That may seem like a lot of money. $230 million is a lot of money. The Alumni Association would love to have one of you give a <laughs> gift like that to the university. But in the, in the beer industry, this is really dwarfed by what Anheuser-Busch spends on Bud Light. And yet, sales of Coors Light now approximate those of Budweiser around 18 million barrels each. So Coors has moved up without a massive advertising spend. Bud Light has actually been shrinking with massive advertising spend. To my mind, the most interesting, and there's a play on words here, the most interesting advertising campaign in the beer industry is the Dos Ecos commercial based on the most interesting man in the world. 
Uh, many people have thought I was the person in that ad, but uh, uh, the, the product behind the brand, hear me on this, the product itself, the Dos Equis beer, did not change its packaging at all. Uh, its taste signature has not changed. Its price point has not changed. But it did come up with a remarkable advertising campaign based on the most interesting man in the world. And this brand has been growing at double-digit rates for the past five years, ever since um, the brand, which is owned by Heineken, came up with this advertising campaign. Dos Equis sales have been on a roll. Um, and these three examples, to me, suggest that something different is going on than simply being able to throw two or three hundred million dollars into an advertising campaign. To my mind, and I won't go into this with diagrams or anything like that, I think scale economies played a major role in the growth of Anheuser-Busch and Miller. These companies rolled out massive four to five million barrel capacity plants around the country, reduced their shipping costs, and simply had lower prices than many of the major sellers, the Goebbels and the Drury's and the Pfeiffer's and the Stroh's, who were the leading brands in my state and whatever were the leading brands in the state you're from. Now let me switch gears a little bit. Every sociologist, every cultural anthropologist, every um, political analyst, every historian sees the 60s as some kind of an inflection point for the United States. And this is the conventional wisdom about that decade. The U.S. beer industry is not immune from this zeitgeist, but it lagged a decade. In the 70s, a new domestic source of supply emerged in the beer industry. And this began a period of fragmentation. So at about the time the domestic industry was being concentrated among a handful of brands at the top, hundreds of small craft brewers entered the domestic marketplace at the bottom. And the craft brewing segment is the attention getter in the beer industry today. And it has been the avenue for literally hundreds of entrepreneurs to come into a market that had been increasingly dominated by firms of huge capital equipment and massive advertising expenditures. So by the craft beer segment, uh, for the uninitiated, I mean the brew pubs, that is small brewing operations that sell most of their output for on-premise consumption, the microbreweries, breweries with sales of around 15,000 barrels or less, sell most of their output off-premise. And then the regional craft brewers, uh, these are outfits whose sales exceed 15,000 barrels and who often sell in multiple states. And in some cases now their operations have actually become multi-plant. Uh, there's an association called the Brewers Association, which is very different from the Beer Institute. The Beer Institute is the big guys, the Brewers Association are the little guys. They, they used to define a craft brewer as one who produced no more than 2 million barrels per year. And in 2010, they raised the cap to 6 million because some of their prominent members were graduating out of the class, so to speak. Um, the craft segment is no longer the province of just little guys. Fritz Maytag from San Francisco merits the title the American pioneer of craft brewing. He was actually heir to the appliance uh, company of that name, the Maytag name. Um, he was not a poor guy by any means, but he rescued a company called St the Steam Beer Company. Its brand name was Anchor. And he turned it into a model. And that's not even the right word. That's the word an econ professor would use. But the, really the right word is an inspiration. He became an inspiration for numerous craft brewers who followed in his footsteps. 
uh, he began selling Anchor Steam Beer in 1971. And in addition to reviving this type of beer, a slightly different brewing process, a steam beer, uh, he brewed the first American IPA. He brought back traditional porter. Uh, he revived the custom of a spiced holiday beer. He created the first American barley wine. And he brewed the first American wheat beer since Prohibition. A remarkable guy. Uh, he also recognized at the outset that his very small operation could never match the cost efficiencies of the Miller Coors and the Anheuser-Busch's of the world, the large-scale facilities. So in order to cover his high unit cost of production and packaging, he knew that his beer had to sell at a higher price point at retail. It had to match, if not exceed, the expensive import brands. And the task was to brew beer that would be worth the candle of this higher price point. And it was his dogged persistence in learning the craft of brewing and his tenacity in persuading retail accounts to try it um, that inspired literally hundreds of craft brewers now who have followed. Now, the most notable of these was Jim Cook, who started the Boston Beer Company. And he introduced a, a different business model than Maytag had. The model was a virtual brewery. Cook recognized that existing breweries could brew a specialty beer if you gave them the right recipe, if you gave the brewmaster uh, uh, the right recipe and the right uh, uh, attention. So he used the equipment of, I always find this sort of deliciously ironic, of the Pittsburgh Brewing Company, whose brand of beer was Iron City. And he went to this company, which was in a tailspin, had a lot of excess capacity, and essentially, in econ lingo, bought that excess capacity at marginal cost and had them brew Sam Adams' beer uh, and sell it at prices well above the Iron City price point. And in 10 years, Cook's firm became the 10th largest seller of beer in the United States. It is lar now the largest domestically owned brewer in the United States. And he provided evidence to economists of just how low the entry barriers are into the beer industry because there's all this excess capacity sloshing around with the, major, with the brewers, who, the regionals who had gone into decline. And so he would go to them and buy that excess capacity at very low production costs and have them brew the, uh, the Sam Adams brand. It was a genius business model. Uh, Jim Cook just made the Bloomberg billionaire list about three weeks ago. Um, which, which makes it harder to picture him wearing bib overalls and Wellington boots, <laughs> shoveling barley into a, uh, uh, into a copper kettle. Um, Sierra Nevada uh, is not publicly traded, but if I've done the math at all right, I would estimate that it would have a market cap of around $500 million today. So in 2005, the craft brewing segment was comprised, consisted of about 1,000 brew pubs. These are outfits that produce just less than 1,000 uh, barrels of beer annually, about 400 microbreweries, and about 55 regional craft brewers. Um, what was interesting to me to observe is during the recession, each of these segments grew in four out of six regions of the country when all the major brewers were, were either stable or, or declining. Um, Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors had negative growth rates of around 3% during this period. Uh, the craft segment, I, I don't want to exaggerate its importance. I think it's 
profoundly important in the restructuring of the industry, but it still only has around, um, around about 7% of the sales of beer uh, today. In some states, it's over 10%. And in some metropolitan areas, the craft segment is now over 20%. Cities like San Francisco and Portland and so on, craft will, I predict, someday be 50% of the sales. The top three craft brewers are Boston Beer, <coughs> Sierra Nevada, and New Belgium. One of the, I'm not a forecaster at, at all, but I do remember in Econ 201 one time, uh, I said, a company to watch is New Belgium. I'd given a lecture on the economics of the beer industry, and uh, uh, that has, been, ha has had a phenomenal growth. One thing that just recently happened, they moved into Ohio. Uh, they're going to be distributed in Ohio. And they had an auction for, uh, essentially an auction, for distributors there to pay them money to get their brand. That's never happened in the beer industry before, to my knowledge. You, know, you go and you cultivate a distributor, and you sign a contract, and you, you, know, you set terms. But to say, hey, if you want my beer, you pay me money at the outset. And that's such is the demand for New Belgium. And meanwhile, Anheuser-Busch, um, or AB InBev, and Miller Coors are, are really struggling to, to grow at all. Uh, their, their, their main brands are in decline. The sales grew, growth at Miller Coors uh, occurs in a division of Miller Coors called its 10th and Blake division, uh, which markets specialty brands and also does some importing. Their specialty brand is Blue Moon, um, but no consumer uh, will find the Miller or Coors name cited anywhere on a package label of Blue Moon, but it is a Miller Coors product, and it's a growth product. Um, the, the lack of the Miller Coors name is not an oversight on the part of the brewer. Uh, they do not want that name on there because to be identified with a major brewer is seen as a negative by the people who consume craft beer. But imagine this now, if you're a beer drinker, you can now buy Bud Light Golden Wheat. <laughs> that is, Anheuser-Busch now offers a Bud Light Golden Wheat, and a few years ago, Nobody could have predicted that that, that would have been uh, a, a direction for the industry. And these brands reflect the internal fragmentation of the top two brewers in the United States. And the question really is, is whether Anheuser-Busch, InBev, and Miller Coors are going to be nimble enough to exploit the cost economies that they have, which are genuine and very real and fundamental to their business, and be able to somehow meet the fragmented demand for taste signatures uh, that's out there in the marketplace and that young customers expect. Uh, some commentators refer to the duopoly as Millcore Weiser. And I want to stress again, they produce a river of beer. The craft segment is just a babbling brook in comparison, but you, you can't ignore the brook anymore. Uh, in recent years, U.S. consumers also have chosen imported beers in increasing numbers. Imports have about 14% of the market. That might surprise you. Imports are still much larger than the craft beer segment. And the craft segment uh, is the one that's really growing, however. Uh, I predict someday the craft segment will approach or exceed imports. Uh, and that's in part because of the cultural mantra that I hear from my students all the time, and that is think globally but shop locally. And so if that really becomes something that gets impacted with beer drinkers, the shop locally will be a disfavoring uh, variable for the import segment. Now let me talk about complementarities between beer and wine, because I believe that the period of fragmentation in the U.S. beer industry 
has brought about an economic connection between beer and wine that did not exist when I first started consulting in the industry and studying the industry. So among serious diners, foodies, wine has long been seen as a complement to food. Fine restaurants would commend a particular wine to accompany a particular menu item. And for many, many years, the wine industry, the wine consumer, could look at periodicals like The Wine Spectator or Food and Wine or The Wine Enthusiast, and, and it would help inform them of the proper pairing between wine and food. And, and to guide patrons in, in choosing the optimal meal <clears throat> and the optimal wine, fine restaurants would often have a sommelier, an in-house expert, and say, well, the chef rem rem remind, recommends this dish, and I would recommend this wine with this dish. And before Fritz Maytag came on the scene, only a few beer drinkers ever thought of matching a particular beer with a particular food. That is, it would be a very rare restaurant several years back where a waiter or a waitress would come up and say, uh, the fish tonight goes very well with Bud Light. <laughs> or um, the, the Asabuco is really nice flavoring with the Miller High Life. Um, beer drinkers who cared about complementarity with food almost always chose an imported beer. And this is no longer the case. In 1977, a very important thing happened in the beer industry. A writer named Michael Jackson wrote a book called The World Guide to Beer. And, 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 and Jackson wrote about beer consumption the way authors for years had written about wine consumption. Jackson did for beer what Frank Schoonmaker did for wine. And so today there's a whole cottage industry of those who write on beer tastes and there's a cottage industry of putting on beer festivals. And if all the beer tasted like Milkurweiser, it wouldn't make any sense to have a beer festival uh, or to match particular brands of beer with particular foods. Um, many brewers in the craft sector no longer see their growth future in getting regular beer drinkers to come over to the craft segment. What they look at, what they covet, is converting the wine consumer to the beer consumer. In other words, take beer consumption out of the bar and into a good restaurant. And there's a new book called Tasting Beer by Randy Mosier. And it's a very um, fruitful venue to describe the interface between beer and wine. Uh, with beer, the general principle is to match delicate dishes with delicate beers. Strongly favored foods with assertive beers. For example, Mosier would pair a stout with smoked salmon. He'd put a pale ale with a grilled burger. He'd put lager, most common beer in the United States, he would put that with bratwurst. And, and what's really remarkable and new to the beer industry is the contention among beer writers that malt beverages can fill voids in the palate that's left unfulfilled by wine. Serious beer drinkers and serious beer writers talk about this a lot. For example, Mosier claims that wine has blind spots with regard to soup, with regard to mushrooms, with regard to cheese, with regard to spicy foods, and he argues that beer organoleptically can fill those blind spots. Uh, beer purportedly works with desserts in a fashion that trumps wine. Very sweet desserts match up with beers of a robust, hoppy bitterness. Uh, Mosier argues that chocolate loves a dark beer, and the iconic beer ad has a 
bunch of guys and gals enjoying beer at the beach or a sporting event. That's what you may think of in terms of the typical beer ad of, of uh, the past couple decades. Pilsner Urquell, which some people think of as the finest beer in the world, um, now runs an ad with a recipe for Czech peppered duck breast salad. And imagine that, you know, compare the typical beer ad, a bunch of guys, a bunch of girls at the beach, and an, a beer ad with a recipe for Czech peppered duck breast salad. Um, that's a whole really different world. Is there a general principle about beer and food that compares with the red wine goes with meat principle? Uh, that's sort of what novice wine drinkers rely on. Uh, Mosier offers one general protocol. He says, when you're in doubt, choose a Belgian beer. Um, another area of competitive similarity between beer and wine is the destination rivalry. Uh, while many tourists have visited large breweries of Anheuser-Busch and Miller and Coors, these visits, if you've ever been on them, are essentially plant tours. I mean, it's not a whole lot different than going to see an Alcoa aluminum plant. You go and you're wowed by the size and the speed of the packaging lines and it's kind of like wow. And then maybe at the end there's, there's a, a, a sampling of, 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 of the beer. But visitors really don't show up to buy. But craft brewers, they make their facility open to visitors uh, in a way that is more similar to what a winery does and not a mega, mega brewery. Uh, craft brewers recognize that visitors to their facilities, they're not there to be impressed by the packaging line speeds uh, at all. They're there to learn about the brewer's product line and potentially to purchase it for off-premise consumption. Another really interesting thing at the beer festivals. There would have been a time when if you had gone to the city of Charlottesville and say, we want to have a beer festival. We have thousands of people come in, or hundreds maybe for Charlottesville, and drink beer. The government would think, I'm not sure that's a good idea. I mean, I've seen what massive alcohol consumption can do at the university, and maybe I don't want that here. But now cities avidly court and will pay to have beer festivals in their town. They're viewed, whether it's a beer festival, a charity pub crawl, uh, it, beer tourism is seen as a very, very positive thing, bringing thousands of prospective customers who are willing to pay for a tasting experience. Now, um, if you're looking at your watch, I want to tell you, I'm drawing my talk to a close. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was, a, Tom mentioned I went to Kalamazoo College. When I was a student at Kalamazoo College, I took a speech class. And my speech teacher, I still remember her, Professor Nelda Balch, she told me that when I was getting ready to, getting, getting near an end of a speech, it was real important to tell your audience that. And uh, Kalamazoo College is not like UVA. I mean, I have a class this fall with over 1,000 students. But at K-College, we had like 12 kids in a class. <laughs> And I noticed that Mrs. Balch didn't say that to the other students. And I asked her why, and, and I was called Kenny in those days, and she said, Kenny, if you tell your audience you're getting near the end of your talk, it will revive hope among your audience. <laughs> so I am getting near the end, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conclude, and this won't surprise some of you, on a theological note. Uh, Bible scholars, people who really study the Bible, are unclear whether beer or distilled spirits have a place in the Bible or not just not clear, but wine clearly has a biblical association. The very first miracle in the Bible attributed to Jesus took place in the village of Cana in Galilee where Jesus turned water into wine, his first public miracle. 
And for anyone involved in the production or consumption of wine, uh, the account of this event is really quite astonishing because the wine, uh, first of all, was not the product of a market transaction. There was no consumers demanding it in the traditional demand and supply sense. It was more like a command economy uh, in that Jesus' mother told him to make the wine. And the production function that Jesus used uh, was basically just some urns and some well water and maybe 10 minutes of time. So there was no need for grapes. He didn't have to plant them, prune them, harvest them, ferment them, and age the product. It just was there. And then the quality of the wine also bears uh, uh, attention. The wine was produced on the spot, and yet the Bible indicates that the wine Jesus made was excellent. And how do we know that? Because the guests expressed astonishment that the host would be so gracious as to not serve cheap wine when they might be tipsy enough not to notice. But as the Bible reports, the wedding guests believed the host had kept the good wine, the best wine, until now. Now, there's no mention anywhere in the Bible of Jesus turning water into beer. And this alone gives the wine industry a kind of a spiritual imprimatur uh, among alcoholic beverages that beer will never have. Nonetheless, many craft brewers are trying to turn wine into beer. Uh, or more accurately, turn wine consumers into beer consumers. And thus far, their aggregate numbers are small, but with the advent of the craft beer segment in the United States, for breweries like this, uh, like, like th those you might visit, beer is no longer just for Joe Sixpack. Uh, beer has joined wine as a beverage for connoisseurs. And some domestic brewers today are going to vie for the patronage of wine drinkers as well as the patronage of those who normally consume imported malt beverages. So I end up kind of where I began, brother, sister, brother beer and sister wine. And like most siblings, they have much in common, but also like most siblings, there are matters to quarrel over and compete about as well. And I will close at that point, and uh, I'm told if we have time, I can take Q&A. I don't know how that's going to work, so I'll turn that over. I can't. So first of all, thank you very much for this uh, uh, lecture. It was just absolutely wonderful. My question, with no more experience than traveling through Europe, uh, it, it seemed like the Europeans took kind of a different approach with their beer industry, where in the United States we had these very large manufacturing. And at least I felt when I was traveling through Europe, it was more of a cottage, support your regional um, brewery. Uh, do you have an opinion why Europe perhaps took a different approach than the United States? Yeah, I, I do. I think that the European beer consumer had a, had a more refined palate, first of all, uh, for, for the taste of beer. And uh, I've seen that revealed many times when Europeans come to the United States and they can usually restrain their enthusiasm for American beers, at least the mass-produced lagers. Uh, so I think it's partly a matter of, of right from the get-go, having a more differentiated taste. But I think the other thing is that, is that even, even though we think of the European market now as more of a market, it is still very much a collection of countries that, um, that, that, that we've had the advantage of brewers being able to exploit large economies of scale and move it across a single national market and Europe did not have that. 
there is an increasing trend towards concentration in the European beer industry. It's not as well known in the sense that Heineken, for example, is an InBev, are savvy enough to keep the local brands. Uh, so there's not the Budweiser throughout Europe, the Miller throughout Europe. It's, it's more like the Blue Moon phenomenon. <laughs> Heineken may own a, a, a particular European brewer or African brewer and not put the Heineken name on it. They may be selling Heineken as well, just as Miller hopes you'll buy Miller Lite. But if you're not going to buy Miller Lite they, and, and you're going to trade up a bit, they hope you'll buy Blue Moon. And there's also a question up here, Althea. So I know this might be a big question, but so what about the micro distilleries that we're seeing popping up all over the place now? Is that going to be uh, uh, another sibling in this? Yeah, I think it will. Uh, one just op is, is in the process of, the question was about micro uh, distilleries. One is opening in Nelson County, which I find really intriguing. Uh, there's a pretty strong uh, craft beer segment in Nelson County now, which has been welcomed by the county as adding to the tourism. It's not just a wintergreen type thing anymore, but they hope you'll come there and, and sample the craft beers. Um, the, the, the interesting phenomenon I'm looking at right now is the movement to a hard cider, which is kind of, a, I find, kind of in between the malt beverage and the distilled product. And, and while it's still a small amount of beverage and revenue compared to the overall industry of alcoholic beverages, it's, it's really popping up with some pretty rapid growth figures in some areas. You know, in some ways, I, I, I've, if, if you think about some of you um, uh, uh, are, are almost as old as I am, and so you can think back to uh, the coffee industry to take another beverage. And I'll come to your question in just a second, just to f f follow on. So I can remember uh, in my professional career being involved in an antitrust case uh, against Folgers and Maxwell House. And the idea was that these two companies dominated the American coffee industry. Now, my students today, if you say coffee, <laughs> Maxwell House and Folger does not jump to their mind, <laughs> if they even have heard of them. But you don't have to go back many years to when the federal antitrust authorities thought the coffee industry was moving to a duopoly. Because here were these two giant firms. Folger had been bought by Procter & Gamble, so all this money was going to be thrown into the production of Folgers. Maxwell House had been bought by General Foods. Who would stand a chance in the coffee industry was the view of the government. And about the time the case was winding down, Starbucks, Pete's, and this whole phenomenon comes along to where the coffee is no longer just, I'll have a cup of coffee. Uh, just as I'm not a beer drinker, I'm not a coffee drinker, but my wife loves coffee. And, and if I go to order coffee for her at Starbucks, I have to almost pull out a three by five card and say, what my wife likes is the following. And it's this and this, and it's extra hot, and just a little bit of foam and so on. It's very complicated. Uh, but yet, people who drink coffee have mastered what it is in terms of this product heterogeneity that they favor. And, and so you see somewhat the same sort of thing in the beer industry, just uh, starting with Fritz Maytag, that, that, okay, it isn't just I'll have a beer, but I'll have a Bach triple-edged wheat beer uh, IPA or whatever. I mean, it's just very complicated. But that's very much, you know, in some sense, that's what happens as countries get wealthier, is they can cater to more and more finely tuned and differentiated tastes. That can happen. But the other thing I think that happens culturally, and here I'm totally out of my league, is that people, as a country becomes wealthier, they, they want to 
adopt a brand signature for themselves. Their own persona is to have a brand, and one way you brand yourself is by these very minute concoctions as to what you ingest, including what you drink. And I think part of that also favors the craft segment. We can get a mic to this. You guys got mic. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Could you talk a little bit about the breakdown between on and off-premises uh, consumption in the U.S. and also what happens, you know, given these commodities, you know, beers, you know, uh, no differentiation really in the product itself between Anheuser-Busch InBev and Miller Coors. What are they doing at the distribution level to fight it out for the on-premises sales? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a complicated question because at the distribution level, um, I think we're very much in a disequilibrium situation with regard to distribution. At one time, to have an AB distri distribution um, center in a major city was um, just about like having a license to print money. I mean, you basically had a heavily advertised product, strong demand. You took a product in, the logistics were fairly simple. Not, not, not that, it, that I could do it, but it, it, at least in terms of the linear programming aspect of it, it was fairly simple. You wanted to have an efficient distribution network, you have good truck drivers, people go in, get into a, a place, put the product out in an attractive way, and get out and get to the next account. And if you had high demand, you had enough density for that. In fact, a lot of people thought, well, how would craft beer ever get distributed? And, and, and for a while, people like AB would have distribution contracts. That is, St. Louis would have a contract with a local AB distributor that it was to be 100% exclusive. And, 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 and that has really started to break down because the AB distributors have recognized that there's this growth segment and they don't have a product that really meets it. So that 100% exclusivity that AB fought so hard for um, is starting to break down in part because their own distributors who used to think this is cool I've got the whole thing and I'm exclusive is my rivals over here have got um, you know, Belgian beer or something like that. On-premise has become very very important to the craft segment that's really and it goes back in a way as a lot of things do to Fritz Maytag because he found that retailers were not very enthused about the beer but he could go and talk to a bar owner a restaurant owner and say hey why don't you try this and, 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 and once the people began trying it on premise, then a lot of people said, well, gee, I might like to have this at home. Where can I buy it? And the 7-Elevens originally were not the place, but Maytag would go and get some retailers to carry it. And, uh, you know, now um, Walmart, for example, uh, Walmart, uh, their, their beer buyer, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he's a really important guy in the beer industry because Walmart sells more beer than any other retailer. Walmart's very enthused about the craft segment. I mean, they're still, they, they, you know, they grind out the AB products and they grind out the Miller Coors products, but that guy realizes that Walmart wants to double their beer sales in the next X number of years. I forget what it is, but craft is going to be a very important part of that, and he's very upfront about that. that and, and so, you know, something really is embedded in the American culture when, when in, in terms of mass-produced culture, when Walmart says, we're going to be the biggest seller of Sam Adams beer in the country. I mean, that would have been really hard to imagine some time ago, probably even to Jim Cook, that, that someday a, a mass merchandiser would want his beer and be talking about a serious business model in which it, it would play an important part. 
So just to come back to your question, on-premise consumption is still seen as tremendously important, but it's also seen as important now by, by AB InBev and Miller Coors because it used to be it was just automatic that they'd get the taps. Either one or the other or both would get the taps, and they realize now there's a lot of restaurants where they're not on tap even, and that's a very bad sign. You go in and you want a Miller beer, and, and, and you know, maybe they've got a bottle of it somewhere, but they don't have it on tap, and all the taps are craft or maybe Kraft and one implement, maybe Heineken's has got a tap. That's very, no pun intended, very sobering. If you're, the, <laughs> you're the, if you're the number one and two firm in the industry and you're having trouble getting taps in a restaurant or a bar, very troubling. But these guys, the Kraft people have recognized that you gotta get people to try the product. And, and if you don't have the mass advertising to get them to recognize the brand when they're in a 7-Eleven store, then it's got to be word of mouth or something that you're willing to try when you're out on a special occasion and somebody will say, hey, have you tried this? A lot of our customers really like it. Got one question here in the middle. Hi, thanks a lot for your time today. Uh, Thank you. Very enjoyable. Um, just as a comment on the distribution side, we actually recently started a craft brewery here in Charlottesville. So as a shameless plug, it's called uh, Three Notch Brewing Company. We would love for you to come down to Grady oh, great. Avenue. <laughs> Uh, today, yeah. Let me let um, me just say that's a great name. A lot of people may not know this, but Three Notched is the old road to Richmond. Maybe yes, you don't yes, know sir. that, but I used to live on the Three Notched Road when I lived in Keswick. So that's a very well, great, uh, that's we, a great name. Yeah, we definitely realize that, and um, you know, the uh, obviously ploy there was to play off Virginia history. So yeah, it's sometimes um, called the Three Chopped Road too. It is. Three, we have a beautiful Three Chopped Pumpkin Ale that we would love to oh, serve you guys great. today. Oh, great. Good. Well. Keep going. We'll keep we'll 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 keep like moving a, the yeah. demand curve to the right here. <laughs> um, a comment on the distribution side: uh, we made a very interesting choice early on to uh, use the Virginia law to uh, create a distribution company and self-distribute our beer, and a lot of it was to uh, leverage um, a, a, a distribution brand to uh, potentially sell that to a Middle Coors outfit or to an Anheuser Busch outfit as we want to grow into a regional brewery. So. There's a lot of creativity that's spawning um, in that area uh, of the uh, distribution chain, if you will. Yeah. Um, but my question to you is more on how the market is growing and how fragmented it is. Um, an entrepreneur always uh, wants to forecast a way to exit at some point. And um, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how consolidation could take place and affect this industry in the next uh, five to ten years. Yeah. Um. Thanks for your question, and, and, and I really do wish you well. I, I'm, you know, <laughs> one of the strange things about being an economist in an academic setting is you live in a world where many professors don't like people in business. They look upon them as exploiters, price gougers, or whatever, and I look upon them the way somebody in the English department looks upon poets and artists, that you're creating something. You're not only creating value, but you're creating something that takes great tenacity and creativity, just like writing a poem or doing a painting or something like that. So I, uh, I, 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 I really admire entrepreneurial activity and, and what it does to a community and, and the tenacity that's required behind it and the risk taking. The, um, I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation ultimately because there's value there. And um, people who are smart enough, and there are people in the venture capital and private equity world who are already looking at, at consolidation, some of it has already taken place. Um, where um, people are, are, are trying to consolidate and still somehow keep the magic of the local creativity and the entrepreneurial bent 
and the uh, and the product differentiation. So a lot of smart people, as you're probably aware, are are looking at this of ways of saying, all right, this this is a growth segment. It really is, and and what do I do to make sure that the growth all doesn't go to to Heineken's picking it up, but what can I do in a, as, as a consolidator, a venture capital guy or, or whatever to, to pull some of this together? There may be opportunities for economies of scale in, in buying uh, if through consolidation, but the tricky thing will be to still, because it's part of the cachet of the, of, of the consumer is to uh, this buying locally, something that's, that's different, and if it all becomes seen that, uh, well, Anheuser-Busch owns the whole thing anyway, uh, it will lose some of that that um, that cachet. Incidentally, I know I'm not supposed to ask you questions, but was it S608? Was that the was that the bill that allowed you to get the distribution? I've heard that. Okay, allows you to sell on premise without having food. If there's an arm's length transaction between two different companies that are not wholly owned by the uh, manufacturer of the uh, product, then mm -hmm. you can self-distribute. So essentially, I tapped my beautiful wife on the shoulder to open a distribution company. Okay. And uh, <laughs> I separated that yeah. quite yeah. nicely. Yeah. So. See, one of the tricky things that, that even brew pubs had at one time is that dating back to prohibition was a series of rules, many of which I consider very archaic and some of them downright anti-competitive, of um, what's called a three-tier distribution system where you had a brewer and you had a wholesaler and you had a retailer. And some people in, in the prohibition movement thought that if you put this middle person layer in, this would somehow keep beer companies from vertically integrating into retailing that somehow would lead to drunkenness and general dis, uh, 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 behavior that, that prohibitionists still had a concern about with regard to alcoholic beverage consumption. Well, when somebody comes up with the idea of a brew pub, they are brewing and they're selling under the same roof. And here are these laws that say, oh, the product has to move to a wholesaler. And, and, and literally there were cases where uh, the, the brewer would have to take the stuff away to a third site, put it off the truck, back on the truck, and take it back to the same restaurant. Uh, which is wonderful if you're the firm that can pick up the 10 cents every time that has to come to your dis distribution point, but it's not a great deal for the consumer, it's not a great deal for the brewer, it's not a great deal for the restaurant owner. Uh, uh, and, and a lot of that is broken down, but it took a lot of lawyers and a lot of fights to, uh, to get that broken down. Question. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, you've mentioned a number of brewers, but I'm kind of curious how Guinness Stout fits into your picture. Well, Guinness Stout's a very important import brand. Uh, it's been imported in the United States for years. It, it's a, uh, it, it in some ways made the world easier for the craft beer segment because for a long time, if somebody was going to drink stout, it was Guinness. And so people who were acquainted with that particular taste signature um, were acquainted with it because of the marketing efforts of Guinness in the United States. So when um, a new entrant decides, oh, I'm going to try an IPA ale, and now I think I'm going to try a stout, there's some people who know what it is already. Guinness, in some ways, was, was a pathbreaker for the craft segment. But in terms of overall sales in the United States, Stout is very small. Guinness is a small player. Worldwide, Guinness is a very important uh, brewer. And, and when I was talking about 
brewing having a wonderful and, 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 and really amazing history. It's the families like the Guinness who add to that richness of the history because they've been doing this for years, generations. Question? Uh, Whoever quick, has a mic, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I can call I was speaking, on people. Uh, oh, I, there we go. Uh, quickly, from the hinterlands of Floyd Canyon, where we spend our summer, uh, needless to say, there's a hard cider uh, uh, production there and other forms of alcohol that movies and books have been written about. Uh, but the other thing that's uh, shown up has been a, um, a, a metery uh, production, which is the oldest form of alcohol known to man, I understand. Uh, and I, and many of our friends, including UVA people, did not know what mead was, but I understand now it's in uh, wine and food magazine, and mm -hmm. of course it's uh, liquor from honey and water, and it's, yeah, just wondered whether you see that as a, uh, uh, it's very good, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm aware of mead. It is very much a niche product in the overall stream of beer in the United States. It would be less than one one hundredth of one percent of, of production, but uh, it would be a good way to show that you're a beer aficionado if you can talk about mead. <laughs> okay, I'm told that we may be out of time, is that right? So uh, thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>